Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Thought Architecture. Yes, I am your host, Justin, and uh, yep, very interesting today. Um, I think I've been uh, a little bit afraid, attentive to share some ideas on this particular podcast, you know, about uh, my personal preferences and personal things. And, you know, putting ideas and mental models out there, I, I do believe is a very valuable thing. And asking people to examine their beliefs, examine thoughts, examine how they do things is very important. Um, and at the same time, I've kind of been pushing down my particular linguistic um, inclinations. And so that being said, let me share with you uh, today an episode on languages and in particular my own thoughts on globalization of languages. So uh, there's a couple of things to start with. So first of all, um, just in case you don't know me, um, I have 15 years in language education, specifically in English language education to speakers of other languages, particular adults. Okay, so it's adult language education. And I focused a lot of that time in English in um, each one of the continents. So I taught in Europe, in London, and in France as well for the uh, French government. Uh, in Indonesia, I taught there um, as well, in private school. In, and we did work with the government as well as banks and the Jakarta Stock Exchange, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, worked in Thailand as well. And in Thailand, I worked mainly on my online projects as well. Um, but I did some cover work up there as well. Uh, Argentina, worked down in Argentina, working mainly with like rich kids, um, you know, and uh, business people. And then, you know, a long way through this, it was a matter of like picking up all the necessary qualifications, the certificates, the diplomas, going to the necessary conferences, things like that. And then eventually getting to a place where I was doing the training. I was training other teachers and realizing like, you know, I had nothing to fall back on when I said, well, do this rather than this. Well, why? Well, because I found it works, you know, and that largely was one of the reasons why I eventually stepped out of the industry because the people who were the educational institutions uh, pushing teaching qualifications didn't take any of the data on board. Once I started looking into the data and I did my master's degrees in, in uh, my master's degree in linguistics and education for um languages the the basic premise was that none of the data was being used in the um, language educational um, institutes you know f with regard to qualifying people or material design or anything like that like it was uh, to put it frankly a shit show so anyway after that uh, basically also almost being fired for um, trying an approach a methodology where I was challenging the norm, but also using a lot of the research to inform my decisions and nearly getting fired for it. Why? Because I wasn't doing what everyone else did. And so how could the school sell me if I was being a maverick? So yeah, needless to say, there's some, some, there's a lot of experience here, you know, talking through this current microphone right now. Sure. It's a perspective on experience. It's my experience. Um, but there's a lot of information and language and passion behind this as well, where I've just been educating people for a very long time. I've been very curious about many languages for a long time. I grew up in a multilingual um, society. You know, South Africa has 11 official languages, which South Africans are very proud to say. But then you ask them, what are the 11 official languages? And they'll be able to mumble their way through maybe three or four. And then after that, <clears throat> you know, it's all gone. So uh, it's quite hilarious that people actually aren't sure about their own official languages. Needless to say, 
um, really the question comes up as like, well, what, what, what's the point? Like, who cares? Everyone's speaking English nowadays. Google Translate is going to do a great job, right? Wrong. Wrong. Very simply put, if people are educated in English language, the simple point is that 99% of people educated in high school get a terrible education. They get a poor education. They get an education where they're told to learn vocabulary lists of words and mathematical formulas of grammar, and it bores them to tears, and they don't want to learn. But maybe they push ahead because they want that fantastic job. So they're really ambitious people. They learn a very robotic English that doesn't help them when they're trying to watch a movie or have a regular conversation with a regular person. does not help them. So the learning system, the learning methodology is really what I'm focused on. And really when it comes down to it, it's like, yes, there is a methodology. But we can break it down to the skills that we're training people in as well. And that all is, if we reverse engineer it, it shows the philosophy behind this, which is the idea of the brain needs to be acknowledged in the learning process, where very very seldomly is you know people just say oh here take this list of vocabulary and just learn it well great how do you learn it well just just learn it well great how well highlight the keywords put it into flashcards and do your flashcards regularly that is such a poor mechanic for learning especially for learning languages such a poor mechanic if you're curious about more uh, mechanics on how to learn like keep you know Keep paying attention to this because as of today, I have run what I call my language forges. I've run three, four, actually, sorry, four successful language forges, three in Spanish and one for um, any language welcome. And uh, when I say successful, what I mean is the methodology communicated was successful. People applied the methodology and found results in applying the methodology. So I obviously can't be held responsible for if a person doesn't want to, let's say, um, you know, put in the work consistently away from me. But when they're with me, they get the ideas, they get the techniques and everything, and they uh, come back with a measurable difference in language ability. So that's what I'm bragging here, okay? But language is so vast. I mean, it's, it's really complex. There's about 10 different skills within the brain that we need to uh, turn up. There's a body of knowledge on all the systems of language as well. Grammar, lexis, uh, context. Um, we can talk about, you know, the how-tos of reading, writing, speaking, and listening. We can talk about phonology. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's quite a lot. There's a body of information here that people need to not be, know all of it, but become familiar with at least. Familiarize themselves so they can categorize information so there's a, there's quite a lot to go here there is quite a lot anyway within that uh, the philosophy is basically attached to language learning how to learn a language uh, the skills to train yourself up in and really my belief is that it doesn't matter which language you apply it to because we're all human the human uh, mechanism is the one to study first before we learn the language specific mechanism so what do I mean by this well if you've been through previous podcasts, you know that uh, I have a theory called the human operating system, the human OS. I, I need to change the name because there is someone who already calls their stuff uh, human OS, um, even though they, they do stuff I don't agree with. Uh, it's still quite fascinating to find that, you know, there's always people who have thought of your name already and combined what you put together together. Um, so what's interesting is that, oh, come on up. Oh, 
puppy wants some uh, attention. So what's, what's really interesting is that um, why learn a language? Well, number one is we're training the brain to think differently. We're training the brain in several skills which have transfer effect into other areas of life, number one. Number two is that when you train a language, you literally force your brain to go through certain adaptations. Now, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm not going to say, oh, yes, it changes this region and that region. But what it does, and you'll notice this, is after language number three, your brain starts uh, specifying and distinguishing between languages. And so there is actually a study that shows that variation in learning. Instead of, let's say, shooting a free throw from the, uh, the three-point line and just learning that, but by actually varying the distance, you're going to have more success at that singular distance. Instead of, let's say, taking 100 shots at that one spot, varying and doing 30 shots there, 30 shots here, and 40 shots there, you're actually going to get a better result by varying your practice. So the idea is that actually by varying your linguistic um, skills, by varying your linguistic uh, let's say exposure, you're actually going to arrive at a better place, a stronger place where you're going to have an understanding of, oh, these languages work like this, this language works like that. But then also from a cultural perspective, when you learn a language that doesn't have a translation, for example, like the first time that I learned uh, anything in Spanish was, can I have a slice of bread? I wanted uh, just a piece of this guy's bread. I mean, at the time I was working in a factory that made wooden pallets, and I was one of the linemen that had a little nail gun, put two and two pieces of wood together and, you know, punch it with a nail gun. And it was nine hours of this. It was menial work. I was tearing out my hair. It was, it was mind numbing. And I worked with these two Spanish guys, like Alfonso and Alfredo. And they were fantastic people, amazing musicians, and such hospitable people. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have any food <laughs> the one day. And needless to say, they, they helped me out with some food. And I was like, how can I say, can I have? And they said, oh, yeah, puedo tomar, which is, can I take? And I was like, no, but I don't want to take it. I, I want to have it, you know, because I had this connotation of taking in English with this idea of obviously uh, somehow robbing or stealing or, you know, taking without giving. The word take really has a lot of negative connotations in English. So I rejected this. I was like, no, 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 no. I want to say take. I don't want to say take. I want to say have. Like, can I have? And they're like, well, we don't say that in Spanish. And to wrap your mind around that for the first time is really mind-boggling, mind-blowing. But once you adapt to that, all of a sudden, it opens a doorway to multiple things. And that's the type of change that I'm talking about. You know, this idea of perspective change, where you can accept that something happens in a language. Why? Well, you don't need to know why it happens. You just accept that it's normal and that they do it. And for you to then take it and utilize it it's not about knowing why, it's just about practicing it. So there is a change in cultural tones when you do this and you start to understand that, well, different cultures just do things in different ways, whether it's use language or whether it's, uh, you know, eat with chopsticks or whether it's, um, you know, eat rice for breakfast. There's nothing wrong with carbohydrates for breakfast. If you think about your typical American breakfast, you've got like you know, all the pastries that you eat and donuts is somehow an acceptable breakfast, even though it's not healthy. Like people don't bat an eyelid at a donut for breakfast, but rice for breakfast is, well, God forbid, why would you eat rice for breakfast? That's for dinner. But, you know, as a food group, it doesn't matter. It's still a carbohydrate. So what's the problem? 
<laughs> you know, that's not not to say anything about like I'm not recommending it. Please don't go and eat carbs for breakfast. You know, consult you know a trusted advisor on this kind of stuff, not a random voice on a podcast. So. Let's get back to the point. The idea of stretching the brain is very important. And I think one of the biggest points is that as humans, for humans to survive as a race, we need to find ways to actually uh, come together. And one of the best ways to do this is to think about as as a global village. So one of the statistics that I'll share with this podcast, if you go to the, uh, uh, the webpage for all the details and the show notes and all that kind of stuff, is a metric predicting that by the year 5050, let me pull it up actually, let me pull up this metric, it's fantastic. But it's this idea of like, yes, well, America currently is majority uh, Caucasian racially, um, but by the year, I believe it's 2050, um, the vast majority of America will not be white anymore. And that is a big deal to think about. And so this idea of like, well, you know, racism, systemic inequality, things like that, Largely, we're breeding ourselves out of that. You know, if you look at the uh, the projections, we'll be out of that very soon. So let me take a look. Where is it? Uh, here we go. Projecting majority and minority, non-Hispanic whites may no longer comprise over 50% of the U.S. population by 2044. There we go. By the year 2044, 50.3% of all Americans are minorities. And by the year 2044, Oh, sorry. Ooh, by the year 2020, that's last year, um, 50.2% of children are minority. And so that's super, super fascinating that we're looking at a global population. And if this is the case, then like most of the population is now going to be, um, you know, uh, a as a global population, we need to now create a global identity. And part of that global identity is the idea of being able to relate to someone in their language, being able to operate in multiple languages, let's say. That's personally a belief. Even if all you are able to do is say hello to a person, how are you, and have an initial conversation in their language, you are going to build trust, build bridges, and allow for uh, business relationships, friendships, whatever, to flow a lot more free okay so that's the first point so the question is is well that's great so then what do we do what do we do with that well there's there's three other things that i wanted to share with you today one of them is the idea of the uh, it's called the power language index and there's a report on this uh created by uh kai l chan phd highly recommend reading it over 6,000 languages in the world today, but only 2,000 of them, uh, sorry, uh, 2,000 of them more or less have less than, fewer than 1,000 speakers. And just 15 of them account for over half of the language spoken in the world. So 15 languages make up more than half of all uh, the languages spoken in the world. So it's this, this idea that there are powerful languages, languages which are more powerful than others. Why? So um, this report breaks it down into geography, okay? How many countries speak that? What's the landmass of these countries? How many tourists inbound, for example? Okay, uh, the economy of these countries, that's GDP, GDP per capita as well, exports, you know, foreign exchange markets, etc. And the communication, how many native speakers, how many second language speakers, the typical family size, and how many tourists that are outbound 
for example. So, for example, like outbound tourists from the U.S., like how many U.S. citizens travel to Spain, for example, in which case uh, we try and learn a bit of Spanish before they get there um, or would enforce English. You know, if a Spanish restaurant offered English menus as well, they would get far more tourist uh, money. Then there's knowledge and media as well. How much internet content is covered? Feature films. Um, how many universities in the top 500 universities are there? How many contributions to academic journals are there? And their diplomacy as well. Are they members of the, the IMF, the UN, the, uh, the World Bank, uh, etc.? So that's that's this is quite interesting. And so I'll save you the reading if you want, where, of course, number one is English. Okay, surprise, surprise. I mean, number two then is Mandarin. And so one of the key concepts with Mandarin that people mistake is they think that all of China speaks Mandarin, where actually there are a lot of languages, hundreds of languages in China but a lot of Chinese people speak it as a second language. They learn it as a second language. It still is a dominant language within China, but as a dominant second language, absolutely. After that is French. Coming in at number four is Spanish. Number five is Arabic. Now, I need to remind you as well that Arabic is spoken by a vast majority of people in Northern Africa, okay, in the Middle East as well. Uh, number six is Russia, Russian. Uh, number seven is German. Now, with German as well, you've got to remember that Germany is the largest country in Europe, and there were also a few uh, German uh, non uh, German speaking countries in Europe as well, Switzerland, Austria, for example. Um, but then uh, Germany also had a few countries in Africa where German is still spoken today. One of them being uh, Namibia. So, now that we've got that, number eight is Japanese, number nine is Portuguese, and number ten is Hindi. Okay, so that's their scores, the Power Language Index Ranking. Very interesting. So that's the top ten. After that, <clears throat> there is this idea that the United Nations also has official languages. And within the United Nations official languages, there are six. Arabic, Chinese, so presumably Mandarin. Uh, English, French, Russian, and Spanish. Okay, so like the big ones. These are the big six languages spoken. Now, why do they choose those languages? Uh, I have no idea what was behind their rationale, their reasoning for choosing these, but um, they did. After that, the third and the final idea that I want to share with you is called the Global Language System, made by uh, Dutch sociologist Abram Desvan. Uh, developed in 2001. Very interesting. Uh, I'm not too sure I 100% agree with him, but he classifies all languages into four categories, peripheral, central, supercentral, and hypercentral. And I'll, I'll, I'll spoiler alert, there's only one hypercentral language, and it turns out it's English. Okay, so they say a hypercentral language is uh, a language that connects speakers of the supercentral languages, right? Um, it is the standard for science, for literature, for business, for law, and, the, and as well is the most widely spoken second language. So a hypercentral language. Now, peripheral languages are at the lowest level, they're minority languages, um, which are spoken by less than 10% of the world's population, which is, turns out, according to him, is 98% of all world languages. So unlike uh, others, um, 
They are used by native speakers within a particular area and ultimately with increasing globalization are in danger of becoming extinct. Central languages, however, um, spoken by 95% of the world's population, generally used in education, in media, administration, things like that. And they are typically at a national level. Um, so they are the languages of, of record for those particular areas. Um, they have stories in you know, history books, collections of classics, folk tales, etc. And many speakers of these central languages are multilingual because they have to be. Their native speakers usually also have a peripheral language and acquire the central language as a form of a, uh, obligation, a must. So then the sen super central languages are now going to be languages that have colonial traces as well. Um, perhaps colonial, we can, we can diverge it and say because of religion as well as because of colonies from countries. Okay. So at the highest level, there are 13. And so we're going to see similar languages again. Arabic, Chinese, Mandarin, of course, English, French, German, uh, Hindustani, Japanese, Malay, Portuguese, Russia, Spanish, Swahili, and Turkish. So what's quite interesting is that uh, Turkish is in here. But if you think about Turkish as well, Turkish is quite a new language, but its roots are in a lot of the languages in the surrounding areas. Number one, Turkish and its connection to Arabic is also very strong. So between Turkish and Arabic, you pretty much hit all of your Middle Eastern languages in one foul swoop, as well as a lot of North Africa. Now, the central, western, and southern parts of Africa are part of a uh, language family known as the Bantu languages. And specifically speaking, Africa is looking at making Swahili one of their lingui francas, in which case it becomes a very powerful language. It's got a lot of native speakers as well. So we've got Russia up at the top, obviously. Russia, between Russia and Arabic, you do have a lot of influences on languages like Mongolian, you know, uh, Kazakhi, um, you know, all of those languages in there. The Hindustani language is um, one of the languages and the groups of languages that influence most of the speakers in India. Although, you know, let's defer to you know, people who know a lot more on that topic, but um, it definitely is shown to be a more dominant language in that region as well. And then we've got the typical ones, you know, uh, that we've already mentioned. We've already mentioned Chinese, English, French, German, Portuguese, Spanish. Between Portuguese and Spanish, you have now conquered majority of South America. Um, and then also you add the French in there and you've con between French, Swahili and Arabic, you, you now speak the majority of languages spoken in, uh, in Africa as well. And English, of course. So you are really getting uh, a, f a huge fold of languages between these 13 super central languages. Now, you might ask about like Japanese. Why is Japanese in there? It's only spoken in Japan. This is true. But the number of Japanese speakers in the world is huge. The Japanese population is huge. It's in the hundreds of millions, right? So you've got... Now, if we look at the top uh, languages according to population and just the size of the countries as well, I mean, we're just getting deep into the thick of, excuse me, into the thick of things. So if we just talk about uh, different languages in the world, 
you're looking at, you know, China with 1.4 billion people, so worth learning Mandarin. India, 1.3 billion people, the most common language there being Hindu, you know, etc. So as you go down the list of um, these languages, you see how important it is. But on that list, at number 11, is going to be uh, Japan with 125 million people. Mexico with 126 million people, Russia, etc. So one of the interesting things is that um, Japan has a very strong economy. They've got a lot of people, but not just that. They've got a cultural push where people are interested in the uh, the classics from Japan, classical culture, whatever. You know, they're interested in the moderns from Japan, as in like anime, things like that. It's It's a huge push. It is a huge push. So in saying that, um, there is a reason to learn a little bit of everything, a smattering of everything. And so challenging the methodology used by language learning institutes, challenging their choice of languages as well. Um, I've been running little experiments on how fast can people acquire certain levels of language, and I've transformed that for myself. And I will speak to you about that in my next episode. We'll go into more details of that. So if you're looking forward to that, let me know. If you find this topic very interesting, if you find any of this data interesting, please feel free to share this. Start a conversation with people in your lives. You know, a good point to talk about as well is, um, you know, which languages do you think are worth learning and why? Like, is it worth learning Latin, for example, or Esperanto? Those are some interesting questions to discuss too. But until next time, let me know what you think. Let me know if there's any topics you want me to cover. Give me some feedback. I love hearing from people. Um, If you've got any suggestions or ideas, let me know. And uh, yes, my greatest wish is that this adds value to your life because you are wonderful and very special and you deserve a lot more than you think. And we as humans tend to be a lot harder on ourselves than anyone else can be. So a quick reminder, be kind to yourself. Treat yourself with a lot of love because I love you too. Have a great day.